and welcome to episode three of Speaking for the Trees. This is a podcast where two environmentally educated doofs rant about the state of our deteriorating ecosystem and future. But hey, we'll try to keep it light, so you know, there's that. I'm Ellie, and that's Lauren. Hey! And uh, this week, it's all shallow dives to cover a whole bunch of topics all about pollinators. So what are we talking about today, Lauren? Okay, so this week we are talking about what's up with bees. Are we still worried about them? How worried should I be? Uh, there are other pollinators besides bees, right? What are what are those? <laughs> I hate that you wrote that in the script. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> the vegans tell me not to buy honey, and a lot of people are telling me buying honey helps bees. Which one is it? What in the hell are... Ne- I'll say I'll say this word for you. Neonicotinoids. Neonicotinoids. And why is my hippie aunt on Facebook constantly yelling about them? And how pissed should I be that they're still in use? You can tell I wrote that section and Lauren has to read it. And it's a fun thing that I do to her every time. All right. (laughs) Since this is a sort of news adjacent podcast, I'd like to add a time code in here. Today is April 23rd, 2020. It's my mom's birthday. Also, Willie Shakespeare's birthday. Represent. Uh... That's right, we on average record one episode every two months. (laughs) So uh, don't think about that too hard. Let's move on to the content. Lauren, you're handling the intro material this week, so take it away. Okay, so I guess a good place to start might be to define the term pollinator. So a pollinator is any animal that moves pollen from the anther to the stamen of flowers, a.k.a pollinating them so like the the boy parts to the girl parts yeah i I didn't want to write that it sounds very childish it's childish it's also i don't know it's very i don't like it yeah i just i see why you didn't write it but it's also i don't i don't know what an anther and stamen is but i kind of just inferred it but i want to make sure our listeners know yeah yeah So lots of different animals can be pollinators. Bees are probably the most iconic, but butterflies, wasps, flies, and even some birds and bats can be pollinators. It is estimated that worldwide about 87.5% of plants are dependent on animals for pollination. So this number is really dependent on the climate and plant species present, and it ranges from like 78% in more temperate areas to a whole 94% in tropical climates. That's really high. It, so it'd be like 78%-ish like here where we live. Yeah. In the northern United States. Yeah, that's yeah, that's about what we would expect to see. Um, that's so high. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize. So I like animals, but I'm also selfish. What do these animals <laughs> do for me? Well, if you are a person that consumes food, then you are already <laughs> then you are already <laughs> reaping the benefits of the work that pollinators do. Of the 1400 types of crop plants grown worldwide, um, almost 80% require pollination by animals. A lot of cereal crops like wheat, rice, corn, and barley, those are wind pollinated, but that's a total lack of variety for our diets. So pretty much Can't just eat those. Yeah, pretty much all fruits and vegetables are dependent on animals physically moving the pollen where it needs to go. All right. So I feel like that we've talked about the importance of pollinators in general. Let's get into the most famous pollinator, bees. 
Hell yeah. So, since... Iconic. I stand an icon. <laughs> since I have successfully dragged Ellie into playing Animal Crossing New Horizons with me, I will True. begin by reading the quote you hear from Blathers the Owl when you turn a honeybee into the museum. Hell yeah. I wish I could do, like, a like his character voice, but his character voice is adorable nonsense. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's true. Pretend I am a, a felted owl. That's how that's how he looks to me in the new game. <laughs> it's true. Did you know it takes a team of honeybees working together to transform flower nectar into honey? Indeed, forager bees suck nectar from flowers into their honey stomachs and then fly it to the hive. Hive bees then chew the substance and spit it into the honeycomb, fluttering their wings to dry it out. Yes, you could say Tawny is a tasty tribute to the hard work of the humble honeybee. Oh, oh my, you mustn't confuse my lengthy description for admiration. At the end of the day, the honeybees are still insects and thus still ghastly. A wee bit less ghastly than most, I admit. I love blathers. Me too. And I love that insect-hating owl so much. <laughs> His little bow tie. <laughs> He's very cute. All right, so why are we talking about bees anyway? So this is the start of uh, the main segment of the po- of this week's podcast that, for lack of a better title, we have been referring to as questions you should be asking about bees. That reads like a BuzzFeed article title. Continue. <laughs> it's a little more in-depth and specific than a general FAQ, but it's still in the format of questions posed and answered. All right. All right. Let's get to it. So question number one, weren't all the bees dying a couple of years ago? All that save the bees and everything? What was up with that? Are they okay now? So the answer to this is a little complicated. Most of the buzz around that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Buzz because they're bees. It's a good joke. I I didn't write it on purpose. So... (laughs) (laughs) Most of the buzz around that was due to the emergence of colony collapse disorder. So starting in the winter of 2006, some beekeepers reported unusually large hive population losses between 30 and 90 percent. Oh, damn. Yeah. An estimated 50 percent of those losses couldn't be explained by known causes of honeybee deaths. So... Um, They were characterized by a sudden loss of the worker bee population with few bodies found near the hive, while the queen and the young remained alive with plenty of honey and pollen reserves. Oh, I'll talk about, like, why that might happen a bit later. Cool. So, It all ties together. (laughs) So, essentially, the worker bee populations are just gone, and that pretty much dooms the remainder of the colony. So in 2008, about 60% of colony losses were attributed to CCD. So the mildly good news is that since then, the number of cases of CCD has been waning. In 2013, it had dropped to 31%. Um, Colony collapse disorder is still affecting bee populations, but the percentage of losses attributed to it have been, they've lowered. So, so we're losing less bees and less colonies are being affected by it. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get into that, uh-huh. but less colonies are uh-huh. being affected by this disorder, yes. So 
Um, from Mar- January to March of 2019 in the U.S., uh, operations with five or more colonies lost almost 60,000 colonies to CCD, which is about 15% of all colonies lost for that quarter. Like a financial quarter? Uh, yeah, it's uh, January okay. to March. So I think that's I think that lines up with the financial quarter. So like three quarter. months. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So and I, I know not that many people, like not a lot of people know what quarters are. Hmm. If they're not in a working age. That's fair. So the bad news is we still don't know what causes CCD. It's thought that CCD results from the interplay of many different stressors, potentially including the varroa mite. I might not be saying that right, but it's a pest that essentially it acts similar to a tick, but on a bee. Um, Emerging diseases... Uh, sublethal exposure to pesticides, uh, changes right. in foraging habitats, poor nutrition, and stress due to management practices for the hives. Yeah, yeah. So things like uh, the like beekeepers might transport their colony to multiple locations for pollination services for farms. I'm going to talk about that a lot in a bit. Okay, I also talk a bit about it. Um, That's okay. So the worst news is that even if CCD stopped happening immediately, overall losses in bee colonies would still be pretty high. So in the 1980s, mm-hmm. when issues in bee health began to emerge more strongly, average annual losses increased to about 15 to 22% of managed colonies. And today, after the emergence and subsequent waning of CCD, our year-to-year average is still about 30%. So 30% of colonies affected, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. Sorry, when you throw a million numbers out, I have to like re- reiterate which ones mean what or else I'll get confused. Yeah. So yeah, 30% of, um, of like 30%, I believe that's a population loss. Oh, that's not very good. It's, yeah, one could say it's bad. I, would, I was about to say, one could even say it's bad. <laughs> So despite this, we have technically seen an increase in the total number of managed colonies of honeybees in the United States. And that's because due to the high agricultural demand, beekeepers are splitting their hives and introducing new queens. So fun fact here, almond growers are actually the largest single users of honeybee pollination. Other fun fact, monocrop environments are actually really bad for bees. Yeah. So I mentioned that the overall losses are still around 30% despite CCD becoming less of a problem. So one of the major threats to honeybee populations is poor nutrition. Bees can't just get pollen and nectar from one type of plant and call it good. They need a variety of flowering plants for their diet. Otherwise, their immune systems weaken and they're more susceptible to basically every other problem. Um, But due to agricultural demand, uh, many bees are being kept at these monocrop environments for longer periods and then moving on to the next monocrop site as different plants come into bloom over the season. So they'll they'll only be eating one type of nectar the entire time, always. Like if you just ate almonds your entire life. Yeah, I mean, well, it's sort of like you only ate almonds and then you only ate... Um, barley. Yeah, 
except that was established to be a wind oh, pollinated croc. It. That's why that's, I just I, remembered a thing. I got stuck too because I was trying to think of like I don't know like only almonds and then only oranges. That's probably not the order that those grow in, but you get the idea. <laughs> um, and urbanization and suburban. What did I say? Suburban, yes. suburbanization. That's a hard word to say <laughs> yeah, in your defense. Uh, urbanization and... Development <laughs> of areas with houses and shit. The end. Yeah. <laughs> urbanization and suburbanization have also not helped. Some other potential threats yeah. include the parasites and pests, um, pathogens like deformed wing virus, which those varroa mites I mentioned a while ago can actually carry. Um fun and pesticides yeah bees actually do not respond well to um human interaction with the environment there are other pollinators that are much more um not redundant is robust. It robust they're yes yeah they they are more robust in this in the face of human development changes but we'll talk yeah. about that in a bit so i've been painting a pretty Hi. grim picture here so i just want to finish by saying that honeybees will not go extinct they are too economically viable for us to allow that even if their population health is generally not good at the current time you just told me a good thing but i'm so depressed now how did you do that (laughs) (laughs) however i do want to also say that honeybees are not the only bees that exist so uh for the last few minutes i've exclusively been talking about honeybees but Wild bee populations, like bumblebees, are far more at risk. Um, There's almost 4,000 species of bees in North America, and these wild bees tend to suffer far more due to things like monocrop farming. Um, Honeybees exist in managed colonies, meaning that their keepers have a vested interest in keeping them alive and strong by ensuring that they get you know, at least somewhat diversified diets by moving the colony around to other locations. But wild bees are just stuck with whatever's nearby. And if the wildflower fields that they rely on no longer exist, they're just shit out of luck. And all of these species are at high risk, and many, like the bumblebee, are currently endangered. So... One of, the que- one of the questions that I posed in the beginning of this was, are the bees okay now? And the answer, as far as I can tell with my research, is kind of, but also no, definitely not. Big yikes. All right. Well, now, now I'm sad. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, that's what this podcast is, really, if you think about it. So our next question is, hey, do I buy honey or not? Which one is it? You've probably heard people say things like, you should be buying honey to support the beekeeping industry and help the bees. And you've probably heard the opposite. Our use of honey is putting strain on the bees. Don't buy bee stuff. Blah, 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 blah. Should you buy the bee honey bee-produced products or nah? Uh, In this section, we're going to get to the bottom of that. So bees have two important roles in our food supply. One. They pollinate crops that we like to eat, such as coffee and almonds. Point 1.1, Caliban is making noise in the background. It's, my, it's the cat, sorry. Two, <laughs> honeybees make honey. So they pollinate crops we like, and they make honey. 
That all being said, we can't just talk about honey when we talk about how us buying different foods affects bees. We also have to talk about the crops that depend on the bees to be successful. The fraction of our crops that is dependent on pollinators has increased by 300% since 1961. Oh my god. Yeah, 300. That means that the number of pollinator-dependent crops we produce has multiplied by three in the last 60 years. Oh boy. It's, yeah. Uh, so in the United States, a lot of our honeybee colonies are not used to be baking. Sorry, I can't talk. <laughs> in the United States, a lot of our honeybee colonies are not even being used to make honey. They're instead they're being used to pollinate crops, as Lauren mentioned. Yeah. So since we've increased the number of crops that need pollinators to produce what we need, we've really had to step up our control of the pollinators. Basically, we cart. Uh, as, as Laura mentioned, honeybees around trucks to different farms, and this puts tremendous strain on them. That being said, it should be noted that honey is just a byproduct of beekeeping. They're going to make it whether you harvest it or not. Okay. So, it seems like the world supersizing their colonies. I mistyped colonies, and it says colonies. Just thought you should know. <laughs> it seems like the world supersizing their colonies of honeybees that work on agriculture is a big contributing factor to the bee colony decline in specific regions. Basically, we're putting a lot of pressure on these bugs to do a lot of work for us, and the stress is not good for them, which causes them to make less new bees and die a little faster. Oh. Think about it. If you're if if you're more stressed out, you're less likely to bang, and you're less likely to, you know, and you're more likely to get in, uh, all sorts of illnesses. Okay. It works in humans, too. So, when the United States and Europe decided in the 1960s to go for cheaper imported honey in large amounts, they ended up reducing their native colony numbers because beekeepers just quit their jobs since they weren't making honey anymore. Because no one was buying it. They were opting for cheaper stuff. That makes sense. A lot of articles... Yeah. A lot of articles that I read actually hypothesize that the decreases in colony numbers that we've seen in the United States and Europe are just due to economic factors like imported honey. Neat. So... Yeah, it's, it's it's actually, most of the papers I read were just like, yeah, it's just economics. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's not what I was expecting. I was expecting science. Uh, <laughs> so, the thrilling conclusion to this saga, should I buy honey or not? The answer is yes, and also no. <laughs> Do not buy imported cheap honey. Instead, buy raw honey from local beekeepers. The more you support local beekeepers around you, the more they can grow their colonies. And I have a citation here that just says all because every single paper I read said that. Oh, uh, yeah. Here's the thing. Good to know. <laughs> Sounds like clear agreement. Here's, yeah. Consensus. What a, what, a, what a fun thing that happens. Here's the thing. You'll see vegan activists saying that we're stealing the bees food. So I just want to make this perfectly clear for anyone listening. By harvesting honeybees honey, we are not stealing their food. As long as the colony is in good condition, they will overproduce honey. When the beekeeper takes the honey, they are not harvesting the bees' entire supply, just the excess, which they won't be using anyway. Not only that, but the wax that we may use on lip balms and stuff that the bees produce is a byproduct and is literally trash to the bees. They don't care about it. They generate it to hold their larvae, and once the larvae are done with it, it's trash to them. So we're helping them (laughs) by taking their trash out. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so buy local honey and buy beeswax lip balm and candles. Not excessively, obviously. You don't want to put strain on the market or anything, but as needed and as an occasional treat. Oh, that makes me yeah. feel good. <laughs> yeah. Like my section. <laughs> also, I, I didn't write this, but you can have a little beeswax as a treat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, 
It's a meme reference that will date this back three months when we eventually release this episode. Anyway, or so. Or as for back, other... like, <laughs> multiple years, depending on how long. <laughs> yeah, the 2040 listeners listening to this just to, you know, get their knowledge base. And they're like, huh, I don't even remember that because I wasn't born yet. Anyway. <laughs> as for our other food supplies, unfortunately, there isn't much we consumers can do to really avoid globally produced foods. It's not like a thing we're able to do unless you live in a farm town with a dope farmer's market. Like my aunt who lives in Dundee, New York and has like Mennonites who make food all the time. Must be nice. Yeah, can't relate. For example, I live in New Hampshire, which has the farming capacity of an asteroid. I can't buy buy locally grown and milled flour or anything like that because we don't grow it. You know what we grow? Nothing. There's nothing here. Oh, I was gonna guess <laughs> we grow that. pine trees. <laughs> it's a trick question. There's nothing here. We have wineries and shit, but I don't even think they even grow the fucking grapes here. I think they import it. Anyway, I feel like some stores no sell things. They grow their grapes here in New Hampshire. I don't know yeah. what kind of climate you need to grow grapes, but I don't think New Hampshire is it. No. Fun fact: Ohio has a whole section that uh, does Pinot Grigios. Learned that today from Wine and Crime. Anyway. So I'm not surprised. it's like a mile long. There's like one mile section in Ohio that does grapes that can do Pinot Grigio. And that's it. That's all you get. Oh, that's so wild. I mean, most of Ohio is farms. So like, I'm surprised that Monocrops, it's just the one corn. mile that they can get the grapes. Or I mean, I guess they could probably get it elsewhere. But like, who do you think dis- discovered that? Do you think they make a lot of money? I am getting distracted. I can't buy locally grown and milled flour or anything like that. Some stores may sell things that say grow without pesticides on them which is cool but they can't charge they they charge more for it and a lot of consumers aren't going to want to buy those things so it is soapbox time the best we can do is try to vote out the officials who have a lot of corporations funding their campaigns and try to vote in people who care about increasing the health of our ecosystem and pollinators we could also try to write to our representatives like with resistbot um and even ask our grocery stores to carry more local options because that is a thing. Like, uh, for example, in New Hampshire, our grocery stores tend to carry a lot of local uh, maple syrup because that is our one export. Oh, that's fine. That's <laughs> all we have. I know that our grocery stores have local beer. <laughs> I was about to say, y'all, y'all better have some bomb-ass corn. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so basically, the... What can I do section of this podcast is always going to be me yelling at you to buy local from local producers instead of big companies and vote big companies out of office. Next question, I'm sure it's on your mind. What the hell is a neonicotinoid? Also, I'm going to call them neonics because neonicotinoid is too many syllables and I talk too fast because I'm always nervous when I record. So, <laughs> neonics are a pesticide used in the United States. We spray them on our crop seeds and then when the pr- plant sprouts, the pesticide is actually <laughs> absorbed from the seed into the plant tissues and stops the annoying bugs from eating the plants before we can harvest them. Completely this unrelated, from- but I definitely heard crop seeds instead of crop seeds. <laughs> I was wondering why you were laughing. I didn't say anything funny. <laughs> crop seeds. I was like, oh, that's like It sounds cute- like a Pokemon. It's a cute little nickname <laughs> for them. <laughs> it's two syllables. It doesn't need a nickname. Okay. <laughs> So, 
so on one hand, this is great. The, the method that we use to dust these crops uh, doesn't actually involve dusting the crops, but rather their seeds. So it actually decreases the usual environmental impacts we associate with pesticide application. Oh, that's cool. However, oh, uh, however, of course. the bad news is <laughs> that while neonics work great on the pests that are actually trying to keep away from the crops, I did not bother to Google what those pests are because they're not pollinators, so fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> they also... <laughs> They also work on the friendly bugs that the crops need to pollinate them. And if you're about to rage quit this podcast because I'm being very simplistic, don't worry. The nuance comes later. <laughs> so, for starters, when the farmers first put neonics onto the seeds, there is still a chance that the spray can drift away from the seeds and kill the pollinators' colonies nearby, even with the anti-drift technology that we've started using to stop it. So we have, like, fancy nozzles that are supposed to prevent uh, the wind from carrying this pesticide away. Huh. But sometimes it still goes right. and it kills stuff and that's bad. Yeah. So if the drift doesn't kill the uh, the bees or other pollinators, there is evidence that when the bees and other pollinators are exposed to the crops, their behaviors and immune systems can be affected, which can cause issues for the company I was about to say company, like the bees have a business, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which can cause issues for the colony as a whole and is eventually and can eventually lead to its demise. Oh, I made myself laugh and then I made myself sad. <laughs> okay, so you remember from Lauren's section that there are a ton of diseases and other things that can affect honeybees, like those mites. Mm -hmm. If the colony is healthy and able to fight those diseases, no problem. But if they are exposed to neonics in a certain amount and their immune system is weakened, suddenly those diseases do become a problem. Think about it. If you're immunocompromised, you're not going anywhere during coronavirus. It's kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, it's so th the issue is we're thinking that maybe neonics can cause bees to be immunocompromised is basically what I'm trying to say. Okay. I see. Okay. Yeah. This is like I was reading some sources that were talking about how there's like there's pesticides which can just outright kill bees, but then there's also just like it's like sublethal exposure where it's like that. Yeah, that's exactly what it was talking about. Yeah. They were talking about neonicotinoids. Yeah, where it's like the exposure itself will not kill the bees, but it's like it still is gonna, the resulting issues that it's still it gonna fuck them up. Yes. <laughs> so now for the other issue, behavioral problems. Bees have this really cool innate homing behavior that allows them to venture far to pollinate things and gather nectar, then zip right back home. They always know where home is. There is some evidence that bees who are exposed to a certain level of neonicotinoids at doses similar to what they find working on a farm have issues with their homing ability. The bees get lost and die outside their colony, which leads us back to Lauren's thing where the the colony workers or the, the worker bees were just gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not confirmed that, um, you know, it's like a direct, it's not confirmed. It's not like a direct correlation. It's, it's yes. Every like. The consensus is that it's a lot of different things acting together that causes exactly colony collapse disorder. Um, and I'm about to talk about that. Okay. Because this next paragraph says, remember how I mentioned there would be nuance to this section? Here it is. Keep in mind that all this stuff is still kind of up for debate and not fully established in scientific uh, consensus. Some studies seem to conclude that neonics do not affect colony health, just individual bee health. Some bees may return to neonic-treated flowers multiple times, while others may not find any. Uh, because just because you spray the seeds doesn't mean every seed gets, seed gets sprayed, you know. 
A lot of studies have been done in laboratory conditions with high doses rather than field conditions with actual doses that the pollinators would experience when they were outside pollinating. So it's hard to say what definitively is happening. We need more research. Mm -hmm. That all being said, there has been evidence for quite some time that this could be an issue and that it is probably adding to bee fatalities around the world that we are concerned about. And I once again have cited all of my sources here. Because every single one says, hey, this is like, we're not sure yet, but we should do more research on it. Mm -hmm. So it is worth being concerned about neonicotinoids. And it is worth looking for alternative ways to deal with crop pests and section. Yeah. This is, yeah, that's interesting. Because I didn't look into, like, the specifics of neonicotinoids because I knew you would go into them. Um, Yeah, because, like, a lot of the sources that I was looking at... um, they were thinking like a lot of it was like different diseases and stuff can also affect the colonies but like if but it's like related to the neonicotinoids because they um obviously are more susceptible to them and then in addition to just like bee management practices where the bees aren't really getting varied diets necessarily like that's also contributing to like making them right if you have poor diet you're gonna have poor immune health yeah it's the same in humans yeah it's it's like so this is uh, well you can take a shot because i'm about to talk about my ibs but basically (laughs) basically if i eat shitty food i'm gonna have a shitty time both figuratively and literally if i eat better food my uh, immune system and my my gut are gonna have a better time it's just that's just kind of how like nutrition is directly uh tied into health yeah so it's like really it's like all of these things acting together that's like just utterly wrecking bees and and other pollinators we've been saying bees kind of as a stand-in for pollinators and most of these um papers we've been reading were about honeybees specifically but keep in mind that other pollinators are also at risk yeah bees are just like the the poster child they're like the panda of the pollinator movement yeah i was i was reading like some source like some of my sources were saying like if you get into like pollinators other than bees like a lot of those are in the scientific community, it tends to be a thing to use honeybees as, like, your... It's, like, almost like a baseline, kind of. It's, like, Yeah, because well, everyone knows about them. There's a lot of literature already on them. Yeah, and they're... And so they're, you can use comparative studies to make conclusions. And they're economically profitable. So there's... That also, yes. There's, like... So, so big companies will fund the study. Exactly. So there's, like, a lot more... Um, incentive i guess to be looking into them specifically but i hate paywalls and i also really hate that the only reason studies get funded is because a company is interested in funding them for their own purposes it bothers me i mean unless it's the government yeah that's true i did my thesis under uh, virginia deq so that's nsf it does happen (laughs) but hell yeah speaking of pollinators other than bees segue time we're going to tell you about two other pollinators that we thought were interesting. Normally, we do something called endangered species uh, of the week. Is that what we call it? Endangered species of the week? Yeah. Yeah. This week, we picked two pollinators to tell you about. Uh, one charismatic or pretty and like, ooh, that's nice. That makes me feel good pollinator. And one uncharismatic pollinator that you don't want to learn about. And I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, just kidding. I'm I'm assuming if you've listened this far, you are interested in learning about all pollinators. So, Lauren, take it away with our charismatic pollinator. All right. So, 
the charismatic pollinator that I chose is the zebra swallowtail. I'm looking at the pictures you put in, and they're, it's very pretty. Yeah, the zebra swallowtail, it's a species of butterfly, and it has tails on the hind wings, and it's native to the eastern United States and southeastern Canada. It's... Um, <gasps> Wait, I could see it, maybe? Potentially. I'm going to Google it while you're talking. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think it... I can't remember how far north they spread. Um, I doubt they spread this far north, but I, now I want to know. Continue. Yeah, but it's... Uh, if you don't have your phone or i don't know if you don't have like google images hand handy it's uh <laughs> predominantly white with like black striping and it's got a red spot near the base of its tail um and it's the state butterfly of tennessee which i have no relation to but i picked it and then found out that it was the state butterfly so i thought i'd throw that in uh, that's fun the wing spread is 2.5 to 4 inches which is 64 to 104 millimeters. Um, Blast. It does not come up to New Hampshire. It goes as far as southern and western Pennsylvania. I was going to say, I know it gets into... It's in Ohio. Yeah. You could see it. It's in Ohio. It's pretty rare in its, like, northern um, parts of its territory. Extents of it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it also extends a little into Michigan, but except you would basically never see it in Michigan. So... All right. Sorry. I was just, I I just wanted to cut in there. Go ahead. It's actually seasonally dimorphic. So early spring ones are lighter in color, smaller, and have tails that are about half as long as the ones born in summer. In order to... Oh, cool. Yeah. In order to reproduce, male zebra swallowtails will lurk near host plants, which are called... The host plants for their eggs are pawpaws. (laughs) That's a cute name. Yeah, I've never heard of them before now. Is that that weird plant that is just a clone of itself like a million times? I, and there's like only one of them? I don't. I think that's. I didn't I look up anything off. about the plant. Aw, <laughs> so. <well>, coward. <laughs> See, my, my whole section also has botany in it. <laughs> I talk- Surprising, I know. <laughs> I mentioned some plants. I don't know. Yeah, you did. No, you did great. And the single, or what? No. And the females lay single green eggs on the undersides of plant leaves. Adults will obtain moisture and salt from mud puddles, and that's called puddling. That's Um, adorable. And they typically obtain nectar from blueberry, blackberry, lilac, redbud, blueweed, verbena, dogbane, and common milkweed. Awesome. So, full disclosure... I picked the zebra swallowtail because I remember it from an A to Z book of butterflies I had as a little kid. <laughs> this this whole segment was so charming. Um, I really enjoy the list of um, plants. If those plants that she just listed um, live natively in your area, you should plant a bunch of them if you can uh, so that you can maybe see some of these and have give them some habitat. Yeah. Milkweed's like a really and common I, one for a lot of different butterflies. I don't know if that's just, Oh, for sure. I don't the know. monarch is really, uh, it's really important for the monarch butterfly yeah. as well. I don't know if that's just because and, of like the range it grows in or if it's just like really full of nectar. Hey, I don't know. don't drink my water, cow. <laughs> Sorry, my cat's trying to drink my water. Um, so also, if, if you're interested in uh, help helping pollinators, one of the best things you can do, if you have land, obviously, and you can garden. If you can't, there's other things you can do. But if you can plant both things they can eat and also the things that they host on, such as the pawpaw, that is a really good way to help them. Yeah. So so now that we've had a really charming, wonderful, Lauren took us back 
to nostalgia land where she had a, a book from a, my specific uh, book. It's very specific to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I specifically typed into um, Google, I typed in like pollinators other than bees, and then I looked for the grossest description. Okay. <laughs> so first let's let's preface this non-bee insects like moths butterflies beetles flies mosquitoes and wasps actually account for 25 to 50 percent of all flower visits though they aren't as effective as bees at collecting the pollen they make up for it by visiting uh flowers multiple times when it comes to plants that bear fruit non-bee pollinators actually have a benefit that bees don't have when these plants have increased visits from these pollinators their fruit yield will increase make meaning they make more fruit oh. and it won't do that with bees that's so cool that's interesting plus they are less picky about land use changes as i mentioned earlier in the podcast which mean which is a must for the amount of changes that the agricultural industry makes to an area and the amount of development that humanity as a whole has decided to do mm-hmm. because we have so many kids etc whatever it, it it makes sense that we develop areas like i get it but also cool it so I went with something called the carrion fly. Gross. (laughs) That's right. The fly that eats dead flesh and literally lays its eggs in rotting corpses. Fantastic. (laughs) They're an important pollinator because they're around at times of the year. All all, like times of the year that bees aren't basically like all of times of the year. Okay. Rather than a short window that other pollinators are only available during. Basically, some flowers, which are called carrion flowers, stink to high heaven, and they trick carrion flies into thinking that they are visiting a carcass for a meal. The fly goes into the flower, goes, hey, I was promised dead meat to lay my eggs on. I'm leaving. I don't know why I gave it a New York accent. <laughs> it's a choice And the you flower made. goes, and the, well, now I'm sticking to it. And the flower goes, actually, no, you're not. And it traps the fly with backwards-facing hairs and other devious schemes. So some flowers actually took a look at all the pollinators in the world and said, nah, I want that one over there that eats the dead things all the time and has no interest in pollinating me and evolved a set of traits to force an interaction with these flies, much like a girl may change her appearance to get the attention of a very boring, mediocre boy in high school, not speaking from experience, what are you talking about? But (laughs) unless that girl is them in the flower, (laughs) does it like eat them? I I, literally next sentence. Okay, so good question. But unless that girl is completely deranged, she eventually lets go of the boy and realizes she's bisexual in college. Again, not speaking from experience. Okay, (laughs) this metaphor is really going off the rails. Similarly, these flowers do not generally kill the carrion flies, but let them out after a while. Okay. Since this episode is so many sections that are supposed to be short, I did not deem it worthy to try and figure out how they do this. And also, I couldn't figure it out immediately, so I gave up. But (laughs) if people want more information on anything we've talked about today, please let us know. We can always revisit some of the topics for deep dives. So, by the way, since I'm a bit of a botany nerd, of course, I had to include some examples of carrion flowers. These are... Uh, that was not English. These are some species of orchids, milkweed, arum, and pipe vines. The milkweed so, you know. again. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about if you want to, uh, <laughs> yeah, if you want to uh, attract, you know, pretty butterflies to your yard, you can plant like blueberries, whatever. But if you want to attract carrion flies to your yard, <laughs> plant some arum, milkweed, and pipe vines. <laughs> 
Well, I think, or maybe just put a dead body there. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> milkweed. <laughs> I mean, milkweed also attracts many different types of butterflies, which are prettier. Although I yeah, have if no you idea, live in the, I'm unclear on like what it must smell like because I don't know that I've ever actually smelled milkweed. Apparently, it smells like rotting flesh because that is what attracts carrion sure? flies. Are we sure? <laughs> um yeah so that is that is the podcast that is the end of our content yeah i hope you enjoyed learning about pollinators and if you want us to talk more about pollinators please let us know and we will do that because quite frankly we will be surprised if anyone ever tweets at us or emails us yeah Hey, thanks for listening to Speaking for the Trees. Feel free to follow our social media accounts. We are at Trees Speaking for both Instagram and Twitter. If you have any topic ideas or corrections, you can go ahead and email those to forthetrees.pod at gmail.com. Our logo is by Tyler C. Hurst. You can find him at, at Tyler C. Hurst on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme song is Porch Swing Days Faster by Kevin McLeod. Okay, love you, bye.